This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also available on iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. Today, we'll talk with James Dashner about his novel, The Eye of Minds. Then PW News Editor Claire Swanson will give us the rundown of the National Book Awards. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen BookScan. So, I'll take a crack at uh, the nonfiction. I've got two standout titles. Uh, one of them is uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin. Uh, this is number five on our list, and it's called The Bully Pulpit, Theodore Roosevelt, William Howard Taft, and the Golden Age of Journalism. And it's here uh, where Goodwin, she's the author of Team of Rivals, uh, continues her presidential coverage in her latest history book, and this time constructing a narrative around the friendship of two very different presidents, Roosevelt and Taft. We say that Goodwin manages to make history very much alive and relevant. Better yet, the party politics are explicitly modern. And uh, at number nine is a kind of holiday book. This is called Good Tidings and Great Joy, Protecting the Heart of Christmas. And this is from Sarah Palin. And uh, in this book, she calls for bringing back the freedom to express the Christian values of the Christmas season. And uh, in in this is she she argues it for in public displays, school concerts, pageants, and our expressions to one another is what she says, but the uh, book copy says. So those are the two uh, non fiction books. Uh, the others on the list of uh, the top 10 are, are basically the same ones that were there uh, last week. All right, and what about fiction? What do we have? In fiction, it's also uh, not a lot of excitement. Mitch Albom's The First Phone Call from Heaven is sort of the fiction equivalent of that Sarah Palin title. Um, this mm-hmm. is uh, a book that our review, which is a starred review, it says that this book just about shouts, give me for a holiday gift. Uh, it's all very much a Christmas story about the, the thin places, the places where the boundary between the secular and sacred is porous, and uh, perhaps people and ideas can cross from mm. one to the other. Um, so there's a, a historical thread as well, but it's primarily just a contemporary heartwarming Christmas story. Oh, great. And that's at number two. Uh, number three is Patricia Cornwell's Dust. This is the 21st K. Scarpetta mystery um, or crime novel, I should say. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a K. Scarpetta novel. Okay. It's pretty much what you would expect. It's got political elements. It's got murder. It's got mystery. Uh, it's got an investigation uh, all, all within the high-powered world of Washington, D.C. And Patricia Cornwell is a perennial bestseller. No surprise that her fans are snatching that one up. Uh, Likewise, Preston and Child are at number four with White Fire. We also gave this a starred review and said that Sherlock Holmes fans will relish it. Uh, It's their 13th novel featuring the eccentric FBI agent Aloysius Pendergast. uh, And our reviewer felt it was one of their best in this very popular series. Uh, And it's got blurbs from a whole variety of big, big names, including Lee Child, Clive Cussler, Anne Rice, and Peter Straub. So uh, when those folks all agree on something, it's probably actually a 
pretty good book. Uh, we say that the book easily stands on its own with only passing references to Pendergast's complex backstory. The plot of it uh, is actually uh, starts out in 1889 at a London restaurant where Oscar Wilde is advising Arthur Conan Doyle on how to improve the character of Sherlock Holmes. And uh, <laughs> this gradually is integrated into a, a present day narrative in which Pendergast's protege is undertaking a large scale study of perimortem trauma on human bones inflicted by a large carnivore. Mm. So, as in, to put it in in slightly plainer language, um, studying the remains of people who were killed by by animals, such as bears and wolves. So, there's the 19th century bear attacks, there's present day investigation and forensics, uh, all woven together quite handily. Wow. So that's uh, that's that's a pretty novel, uh, yeah, sure. novel plot there. <laughs> right, right. And finally, um, wanted to note at number twenty-three because pretty much everything else on the list, as you say, is as it's been in the last weeks, uh, is Stella Bain by Anita Shreve, and uh, this is a, a story of a young woman with amnesia in nineteen sixteen France in the middle of the war, and uh, as she gradually regains her memories, you know, she and the doctor who's treating her develop more of an understanding of the sort of trauma that can afflict people not only physically but psychologically right. in warfare. So it's a it's a pretty powerful novel. Uh, our review says it is both tender and harsh. Mm. So someone looking for a, a bit of interesting wartime reading could definitely pick that one up. Well, it's always nice to see what's a little bit deeper down on the list, too, and that Anita Shreve looks like a good pick. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, James Dashner will tell us about creating a high-tech thriller for young adults. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got James Dashner on the line. He's the author of The Eye of Minds, in which three teenagers track down a killer in a virtual world. James, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, you're welcome. I'm thrilled to be here. Great. Well, for our listeners who haven't read the book, could you give us a quick summary? Yeah, it's, you know, it's it's totally new from my Maze Runner stuff. It's starting a new series, and I'm really excited about it. It's set in the future when virtual reality is just really advanced and very immersive, which seems really cool at first, but uh, some weird, creepy things start happening, and people are showing up brain dead in the real world and being tormented, and our main character, Michael, gets swept up in all of that. So how did you design the, this virtual world, which you call the, the VertNet? Yeah, the VertNet. It, you know, it was inspired by so many things I've loved throughout my life. Uh, movies like The Matrix, um, some of the science fiction novels I've loved, um, and my love of gaming and the fact that my dad was a computer programmer mm-hmm. kind of all combined to help me just really envision what I thought would be not only cool and, you know, plausible, but something I I really do think could await us in our future. The book starts a series called The Mortality Doctrine. Where does that name come from? You know, I just, I like for my titles to, I don't know, I guess I follow my instincts, but something that sounds cool, intriguing, um, that, you know, you find out, later as you're reading why it's called that. And I just thought mortality was a really key word because 
in the first book, and especially as you go on to the other books, you really start to question, you know, what is the definition of mortality and what is real and all these things. And then doctrine just, I don't know, it sounds like a cool word to to really show the the magnitude of this life-changing and possibly world-changing thing that's going on in the background. And how long do you expect this series to be? Well, I have it mapped out in more detail than I've ever done before for three books. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've already written the second book. Which is out I'm next starting, year, if I'm, not, if I'm not mistaken. Right, yeah, that'll come out in fall of 2014. Mm-hmm. And I'm starting to struggle a little bit wondering if, if I can wrap it up with just one more book, but um, probably just three books. We'll see. Sure. And, and how, how does this, a, an idea for a series come to you? This is your third, fourth series now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's really been churning inside my head for a long time, probably since I did see The Matrix. I remember in that movie I kept thinking that there was this twist that was going to happen, and it actually never did. So it stayed lodged in my brain. And then it was encouraged again, I guess, in my mind when I saw the movie Inception a few years ago, which is one of my favorites. Um it deals with dreams, but I think it actually relates a lot to a virtual world that's, you know, extremely realistic. And, uh, you know, when I wrapped up Maze Runner, I just kept think- thinking back to this idea and-, and dove in. So tell us a little bit more about these connections between dreams and the, the virtual world, because it feels like dreaming <clears throat> was sort of the original virtual reality, but now you've got uh, a way to shape virtual reality. Uh, and and to make it maybe make more sense than dreams or maybe less. So how how does that connection work in, in the context of the eye of minds? Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Actually, I think that you know we've all we've all had a dream that felt real when we're inside the dream, and even though it seems silly when we wake up, oh, of course we were dreaming, but. If something feels real while you're dreaming, then, you know, technically, at any point in your life, you, you know, you could be dreaming. It felt real when you were dreaming, so, you know, my crazy mind thinks of stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love in Inception, they would, you know, wake up from a dream, but then they were still inside of a dream. And then they could wake up again and still be inside of another dream and all these layers and I think it really applies to the virtual world. I loved what you said, that it's kind of replacing a dream world in a sense that we can replicate the infinite possibilities of dreams with technology. And, you know, there could be several layers to that, which the story really starts to contemplate as you get farther along. So what's satisfying to you about doing a series rather than a single title? Well, I like both. I, I'm i actually really looking forward to maybe writing a couple of standalone novels when this one is done. But, you know, when I was a teenager, that to me was my most magical time of reading. That's when I discovered Stephen King and Dean Koontz and, and some of my favorite stuff, uh, some of the fantasy sci-fi stuff. And so it felt very natural for me to write, you know, at least as my first target audience for that age. And I really think that audience loves series and loves, you know, 
to be invested in characters and then see that continue. And so uh, for now, it's just felt right to do that. And But I want to get too pigeonholed to that, so I think I will try writing a couple of standalone novels, maybe a Stephen King-esque type story pretty soon. Hmm, that sounds like a nice change of pace. Yeah. And when you're writing the series, uh, is there one point as you're writing one that you, you think, wow, this is this would be a great spinoff for the next one? I mean, does that come to you, or, or as you as you might have said, that you plan them out a little bit more in advance? You know, I, I try to plan them out in advance. At least, you know, the Maze Runner I did in a general way, where I knew the main events of book two and book three and how I wanted it to end, just because I feel like you really need to plan ahead and have everything lead toward that end. With the Mortality Doctrine series, I did that on a on a level I've never done before. I mean, I actually outlined three books because some of the twists that happen, and I really had to craft them just right to make sure they had a good payoff. So, so yeah, it, it's not really offshoot. It's, it's very planned out. Um, the only difference being... You know, I wonder if maybe I need another book to to really wrap it up as much as I'd like. Mm-hmm. And speaking of twists, I I am curious to know what was the twist that you thought would be in the Matrix that didn't happen, or would revealing that be too much of a spoiler for these books? Well, it would it would be a huge spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but when after you finish, you know, the Eye of Minds, I think uh, I'll just say that you know what what ends up happening to the main character is something that I thought was going to happen to Neo in the Matrix movies. All right. So take that away and wait till you finish it to see if it makes sense. <laughs> That's quite a teaser. Um, so obviously you said that you love writing for teens because you remember being a teenager and discovering books. Is there any aspect of writing for teens that you don't like so much? Anything that that's a struggle for you? You know... Not really. I mean, I I don't really think about it a lot. It's not like I write down to teenagers or try to avoid certain topics or try to tone down violence. I mean, I just, I write what feels natural, and, you know, maybe that's just my uh, instinctive level of writing. Because um, I think, you know, the fact that I would say at least half my fans are adults. So I guess the thing that I, I see as a negative is the fact that you know, young adult books are always, always classified that way. I mean, no one can talk about a YA book without saying this YA book or this YA movie. And I, unfortunately, I think that does prevent some adults from trying it, even though I think they would like it. They're like, oh, that's for kids. I can't, I can't read that. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the only drawback is that it's just, it is sort of pigeonholed even though it's growing a lot in the adult market. And when you set out to write the first book, did you intend for it to be a YA book? or? I think so. I mean, I, I definitely intended it to be for older teenagers. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot, of, a lot of times that's just the age of the main character or characters. Mm-hmm. Both Maze Runner and this new series, to me, just made a whole lot of sense to have them be, you know, older teens. And so... 
a lot of time that's that's enough to classify it as young adult. Right. Now, now you were born and raised in Georgia, uh, and your bio says you live in the Rocky Mountains, which which seems to be a, a far, far, far away from the uh, virtual world that you've written about. Uh, was there anything about growing up in Georgia that has influenced your writing? Yeah, I would say the biggest thing is just my parents. You know, they were really big readers, and I grew up in a home that every room had at least one little nook or corner or something that had, you know, books or bookshelves with books on them. And um, so I just, I, I grew up loving books. And also my dad really leaned towards science fiction and that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we'd go see movies a lot and, and read the same books. So definitely the, those family influences were huge. And, I, you know, I think any writer, no matter where they grow up or, or what their experiences are, you just can't help but have everything in one way or another affect what you write. So what was it like for you when the Maze Runner books hit the bestseller list and you were suddenly a household name? Um, surreal, exciting. Uh, you know, for me, it's. I feel like I'm still, and hopefully always will be in that stage of just the wonder of it, you know, not taking it for granted. Because, you know, I, I had a good decade or so where I was working really hard, writing, uh, submitting things, getting rejected, um, you know, going to writers' conferences, all that. So I feel like you know, hitting the New York Times was a big threshold that meant a lot to us. And, you know, it just made me want to make more goals and, you know, keep trying to achieve more and more. And, you know, the movie coming and all these exciting things happening, I just really, really try hard uh, not to take it for granted. Have you gotten to work personally on the movie at all, to work with the folks who are making it? Yeah, I was extremely pleased with how much Fox wanted me involved. Um, you know, they sent me the script really early. I gave some feedback on it. The director and I talked a lot. I went out to the set two different occasions, met all the cast, saw some of the filming. I was just, it was incredible. And from the beginning, I've felt really good about it. Like they're really staying true to the book. So I'm just thrilled with the whole process. What's the timeline on that? When's the movie coming out? It comes out on September 19th of 2014. Wow, that's exciting. So it must be in post-production now then, or almost. Yeah, yeah, they did most of the filming back in the summer, and now it's in the you know editing and special effects and all that kind of stuff process. We should really start seeing some you know, trailers and posters and cool marketing things as the new year starts. Now, I have to ask, you used to be an accountant. Yes. Now, how has it influenced your writing, or, or has it? Uh, I wouldn't say it's influenced my writing. I mean, I, it was a very practical decision. I knew it was hard to make a living as a writer, so I studied and, uh, you know, went that route just so I could make sure I have a job and whatever. But if anything, the way it influenced me is I hated it so much it encouraged <laughs> me to write <laughs> and uh, work harder to get published because I did not enjoy it, and I absolutely do not miss it ever in even the slightest. <laughs> no offense to any accountants out there. No, no, I, you know, different different strokes for different folks. But did it did it help you negotiate your contracts? 
You know, even with that, I, I've pretty much, especially since I've been with Random House and gone national, I've always had an amazing agent who does all that. So I, I try not to get too much into it. I mean, at least I have a background where I can, you know, read the contracts and know what they're talking about. But most of that I leave up to my agent. Sure. Well, we've been talking with James Dashner. You can find his book, The Eye of Minds, in stores right now. James, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks, guys. It was fun talking to you. Yeah, likewise. Thank you very much. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW News Editor Claire Swanson tells us what went down at the National Book Awards. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly, and today PW News Editor Claire Swanson is freshly returned from the National Book Awards ceremony and ready to tell us all about it. Hi, Claire. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, oh absolutely. Happy to have you here. So uh, tell us a little bit about this ceremony. Was it was it very exciting? Was it yeah. all glittery and fancy? It was. It's a very grand space. It's at the... Uh, it's at Cipriani in uh, downtown Manhattan on Wall Street, which was uh, the former uh, space of the New York Stock Exchange. So Corinthian columns and like an uplit dome and candlelit tables. It was it was very glittery and very fancy. This sounds like a good time. It was. And uh, of course, by now, the winners are all over PW's website. But if, would you give us the rundown just uh, so that we have it here, too? Yeah, sure. So um, it kicked off with a. Uh, Young People's Literature, mm -hmm. which went to uh, Cynthia Katohata for uh, The Thing About Luck. Mm -hmm. um, the Poetry Award uh, uh, was went to uh, Mary Shebist for Incarnadine. Uh, George Packer received uh, the Nonfiction Award for The Unwinding. And the final award was for fiction, which went to James McBride uh, for The Good Lord Bird. And uh, there were a couple of guest speakers and an honoree. I think that was Maya Angelou. That's right. Uh, Tony Morrison presented uh, Dr. Maya Angelou with the Literary Award for Outstanding Service to uh, the American Literary Community. And it was just, it was really incredible to see them together because they clearly respect each other so much and they're two, for lack of a better term, they're living legends. And... They're obviously very, very dear friends, and they were just have so much respect for each other, and it, it was really, I mean, that was one of the highlights of the night, I think, for a lot of us. That sounds like a beautiful moment. It was. I mean, Toni Morrison shared an anecdote, I think, that really sort of articulated their friendship, that after her son died, um, Christmas time, I think it was several years ago, the first non-family member she heard on the phone was Maya Angelou. So... This is a relationship that clearly extends past one of artistry, and it's, it's really deeply personal for both of them. Mm -hmm. and, and I heard that uh, Maya Angelou had a song, was it? Yeah, she broke into song. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> also a highlight. <laughs> right. Great. And she's got a voice on her. So. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. Now, was this your first time at the National Book Awards? I was a newbie, yep. Oh, great. Yeah. So, you have fresh eyes from me. It was, it was really neat to see, obviously. Um, you can, I mean... It was a, a celebration of books, and there was just a lot of passion and so many of the acceptance speeches and obviously, you know, and the uh, the honorees, you know, Maya Angelou and E.L. Doctorow. So it was wonderful to, to be there for it. Yeah, I found that uh, at the National Book Awards, no matter, uh, you know, who you think is going to win, whether there's upsets or whether you got it right, it's always, it's a very celebratory time. I mean, it's a bunch of book people. Absolutely. Yeah. Just gathering around a book and just this event. Yeah, it really was. 
just passion was injected into all of their acceptance. I, you know, I think that people thought of James McBride as a bit of an underdog. Sure, yeah. that was sort of the upset. I, I mean, I, I, I think a lot of people. I think a lot of people, from what I heard on on Twitter and, and talking about, thought that George Saunders. Absolutely, was yeah. And you know what? So did the bookies. I checked some of the sites. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. They were. He was two to one, favored two to one. The book bookies. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> is, is there an industry out there? You know, there's not. I checked a very popular site in the UK. So the Brits are betting on our awards. But yeah, <laughs> he was at the top of the list, followed very closely by uh, Jumbly Harry. So. I, he, I don't think McBride was on um, a lot of the radars going into the awards. Um, Though we did put him on our best books of the year That list. is true. Yeah. And obviously we starred him. I mean, PW caught on. But uh, he was really just genuine. He seemed stupefied and a little dizzied by it, but really genuine, really humble and gracious. And and uh, he talked a lot about writing his book, which um, is sort of a disguised memoir of an escaped slave that is sort of unearthed in the 1960s. Um and, you know, he he said he was experiencing personal hardship while he wrote it, the, kind of the dissolution of his marriage, and it was so nice to fall into someone else's world for a bit. So there was a lot of that, you know, that he spoke to kind of the therapy of writing. There was a lot of just really passionate, really genuine, you know, just the celebration of books and writing and reading. And this is after he prefaced it all saying that he didn't he, have a prepared speech. No, he didn't. He kind of tapped his chest like they do and said, I really didn't expect, expect to be here. But he said he was glad too. He yeah. wouldn't have minded if... Yeah, the finalists had won because they're fine writers. Those are his words. But yeah. um, he was really happy to be there. It was clear. Wonderful. Mm -hmm. That's great. And um, the author of the young adult book, I'm sorry, what was her name? Uh, Cynthia Karahara. C Cynthia Karahara. So uh, I, I was wondering what kind of remarks she gave as well. Because I, I remember uh, when we talked with John last week about that he he said that he thought she was maybe a bit of an underdog mm -hmm. as well. Well, that makes sense because she was equally stupefied. She... Uh, said that because of superstition she just didn't prepare anything but she thanked her editor and her agent and and kept it short but also you know very genuine mm -hmm. she she t she seemed a little baffled but i think that that's always nice to see yeah there was a lot of humility and and, and grace well, it sounds wonderful. like a wonderful event it was it was and then it kicked off the uh, with the after party after it all wrapped up and uh, so i left it about 10 45 it was still going strong oh I'm sure. so. <laughs> <laughs> probably probably till quite yeah i think it's several hours beyond that yeah, and then the after parties <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the brits are missing out but that's uh, right <laughs> that's right well claire thank you so much for coming on the show you're so welcome thanks for having me always a pleasure and that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 